Anybody in here 17 years old? Back table right there. All right, that's my crew. Lady Jane Grey died 17 years old as a martyr in the Reformation. Just an amazing story right there. So there's a lot of content, obviously, um, you know, in addition to the biographical sketch there that he worked through. I think he helped clarify several things, but I know that also introduced some terms, some of which you may have caught, some of which maybe just kind of passed you by. And so if, if you have any questions about anything that he talked about uh, or stuff that we've covered so far or the... Um, topics that are on the screen right here. Maybe you just want something uh, clarified or um, something that you'd, you'd like to discuss. Here's the opportunity to do that. So we're just going to kind of take the rest of our time together to do some questions and answers. Uh, Miss Anna. Okay. Uh, in that Tower of London, if there was only, what was the Archbishop's name? Beckenham. 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 Yeah. And Lady Jane Grey. Who recorded the conversation so that you would know that this is what she said? If you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering. Just... Here, here's where I make the the caveat that I, I'm not a historian and I don't play one on TV. Okay, um, okay. I was just wondering where but... did we get that conversation. But 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 she is on trial for heresy, and so there there are records. There's going to be other people present as witnesses against her because yeah, they're they're bringing formal charges, and again, there's this this definitional equality between the the church and the state, and so to get charged as a heretic means you're a criminal in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, which, by the way, when Martin Luther gets declared a, as a heretic, he, you know he runs for his life. He, he d- doesn't end up receiving a capital sentence, uh, but right then he, he could have been executed because of that. Mr. Bill. We have court reporters. Court reporters. <laughs> we love those. Miss Cynthia. We can? You'd like, like that clarified? Okay. Sure. Uh, she's asking for uh, more uh, help with interpreting James chapter 2. So if you would turn open to James 2. The whole book of James is about the nature of faith and the life of faith. And so you find out in chapter 1 what trials do, right? They, they test our faith Chapter 1, my, I've got a relatively new Bible, which means all the pages stick together. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, in verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So each, each chapter in this book is, what does faith look like? What does real faith look like when it's in action? And he raises this question, you, you look at uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, and he asks, what Good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And, and, and notice how he expresses that question. He, he doesn't ask, can faith save? Um, and, and actually, the, the question expects a negative answer. It's a rhetorical question, and you're supposed to answer, no, that kind of faith cannot save what kind is he talking about? Well, he just described it. He says he has faith but does not have works. He makes a claim to believe, but that faith is not 
evidenced in a life of obedience to God. And then he gives this illustration, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, right, again, this is just in words, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so if somebody has a faith that exists only in the level of claiming to believe certain things and saying these things, uh, but that's not attended by a lifestyle that is pleasing to God and moves toward others in love, then in reality what they have is not faith. It's something dead. It's something that is different altogether. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then you could, this phrase right here, you could summarize the entire book of James with these words, show me. (laughs) I want to see it. Show me your faith, apart from your works, which you can't do, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So just mere intellectual assent to something that is a fact, without that touching your affections, without that transforming you and making you new, that's no better than the sense in which the demons, quote-unquote, believe. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And they get a little play on words there. It's literally, faith without works does not work. Was not Abraham our father? And here's here's the verse that everybody has a question about. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Here's just a a very important principle for biblical interpretation. Um, Different human authors, and here's what we believe about Scripture. Every word in here is from God. It is God-breathed, God-intended, and it's written in human language by different human authors that use words in different ways depending on their context and according to their personality and their style. I mean, you know, when you read the book of Proverbs, it sounds very different than when you read the the book of John. Um, So, James uses a word here that Paul uses, but you can't just automatically assume that he's using it in the exact same way that Paul uses that word. There are different places in in Scripture where the word sanctification uh, refers to this process where over time we're made to be more like Christ as we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then there's other places where the word sanctification means when you come to believe in Jesus, right there, God sanctifies you. He sets you apart as holy for uh, his purposes. So you got to pay attention to the context to know what, what he means. All right, so what does he mean here? Uh, well, then he asks this, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works, you see in verse 22 that faith was active along with his works, right? That's what true faith does. And faith was completed by his works. It, 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 its intended goal gets expressed. It bears fruit here. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Abraham is approved by God. He has a right standing before him. 
and we, we talked a little bit about this a couple Sundays ago in the message on Sola Fide, uh, but what James does right there is he quotes from Genesis chapter 15. That, that, that um, passage in Genesis 15 shows up in Romans, it shows up in Galatians, so it's the same verse that the Apostle Paul appeals to when he's arguing that justification is by faith alone, because Abraham believes God, and God counts it. God considers him to be righteous. And, and, and it's, you go back in Genesis 15, it doesn't mean that Abraham believes God and therefore God made him into a righteous person or God said, hey, I accept you because of that, man. He, he, he gives him a righteous status before him. And that happens in chapter 15 of Genesis. And Paul makes the point in Romans 4 that Abraham doesn't get circumcised until chapter 17. And so Abraham was already declared to be righteous before he did anything like circumcision, any work that you know would maybe be an argument for why he's accepted before God. But notice the argument here, right? Uh, He's talking about when Abraham offered up Isaac. When does that happen in the book of Genesis? That happens in Genesis 22. And what James says is that scripture in Genesis chapter 15 was fulfilled in Genesis 22. Right? So Abraham's declaration before God of being righteous in his status, because he's believed the promise, that gets fulfilled in Genesis 22 when Abraham offers up his son on the altar. In other words, we know that the faith, the belief, the relationship that he had with God uh, back in chapter 15 is the real deal. It was genuine, right? And so then in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And again, that, that's just a striking example right there because he, he picks up Abraham, who's the, you know, the father of the faithful, although he was a, a Gentile and an idol worshiper uh, before God, chosen by mercy. And then you have Rahab the prostitute here. Uh, and then so verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's not alive. It's not something that uh, it puts you in a saving relationship with God. And so the way that he's using the word justification here is that phrase, show me. Prove to me that uh, your faith in God is the real deal through the actions of obedience and trust that you show in God when you offer up Abraham seven chapters later when you've already had a righteous status before him. Uh, the, the phrase that's often used is that um, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And I gave this example in my, my sermon on this, that your eye alone sees. You don't see with your ears. <laughs> your eye is the instrument of sight. There's that instrumental cause language. Uh, but an eye that is alone can never see. If it's unattached from the body, if it's not connected to a brain and a neural system, it is dead. It, it, it is ineffective. It's useless. It won't see. And, and another way you could put it, if you want to use some kind of theological terms here, is that... Uh, when it comes to being justified, when it comes to why does God accept us, the basis for that is 
only the work of Jesus and what he's done, the life he lived and the death that he died, received by faith alone. So we're not saved by our faith. It's not that God looks at us and says, hmm, you know what, I'll lower the standard and I'll just accept your faith as the reason why uh, I'm going to approve of you. Uh, No, the reason why he approves of us is Jesus. It's just we get connected to that. We receive that through faith. And so the reason why any of us will show up on the last day before God is because of that alone. Uh, But that won't be all that we're bringing with us on that day. Because everyone that God justifies, he also sanctifies. He awakens them to spiritual life and then they begin to bear fruit in their life. And so you can say, if there's no fruit, there's no justification. There's no spiritual life. And therefore, there's no faith. And that's the point that uh, James is making here. Mr. Donnie. The thief on the cross, uh, you know, he's going to show up on the last day and you've got, you've got the, the books of life and you've got the book of the Lamb's book of life. You can think of it like this. Uh, scripture talks about us being judged and assessed on the last day and rewarded according to what we've done and the life that we've lived. But the reason any of us can be there standing before him is not located in what we've done at all. And, and so the thief on the cross is a good example of somebody who he just implores Jesus, have mercy on me, remember me, don't forget me. He turns to him in, in faith. And, and if, you, if you pull up the account of, of his good deeds... Like they're, they're not impressive, right? Uh, so if, you, if, if anybody would be a candidate for purgatory, it would be this guy. He's got a lot of work to do still to cleanse himself before he's ready for heaven. But Jesus says, today, you know, be with me in paradise. Uh, but if God's going to pull up the record of his good deeds, it's going to look like uh, he trusted in my son. Uh, he defended him in his last day and said, you know, he's a righteous man and we're unrighteous. Uh, don't make fun of him. And died in faith. And that's about it. But God's not looking to, the, to count those things up. Right? Those things are just the fruit of there was something real inside of him that he trusted in my son. And because my son was there dying next to him, he's accepted before me. So if you die in your last moment, uh, you, you, you might have barely any uh, opportunity to show that your faith is alive but that doesn't mean it's not alive, right? It doesn't mean just because you can't detect that somebody was living doesn't mean they weren't living. But, but the ordinary case would be that, you know, if, if, if you go for 10, 15 years claiming to be a Christian and, and nobody, nobody in your life can notice that or, or figure out that's going on, uh, if James would say, hey, buddy, you've you got to reconsider, you, you know, have you joined the, the church of the demons here? Um, Lester, you got something, man? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, well, so what he was saying was that there's no sacrament as a, as a mediatory role in our justification. Right? And so uh, the, the, the sacraments cannot play any role in why we're justified or how we receive justified. That's what faith alone means. It's not faith plus baptism or faith plus communion. So the Reformers did not see the sacraments as having that kind of, of function. Uh, the reason why they, they said that there were only two sacraments, and, and, and the uh, word sacrament or ordinance, we, we kind of use that in, in the same way. And so if at any point during this series... We've kind of thrown an arrow at, a, at, at looking to sacraments. It's not because we've taken issue with that word or the idea of sacraments. It's, it's taking sacraments and putting them in the category of uh, why you're justified, why you're right with God. But the reason why the Reformers said there are, there are two sacraments is because of how uh, sacraments are defined. Sacraments are these practices for the corporate church when we gather together that were ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ to illustrate the gospel, to serve as a sign and, and seal of the gospel. If you, if you look at how Paul puts it in, a, in the passage we considered in Romans chapter 4, He's kind of talking about the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. And, and he makes the point in verse 10 of Romans 4 that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised or without reference to circumcision. And then in verse 11 he said he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so what baptism and the Lord's Supper do is that they serve as a sign and a seal, a a, a reminder of God's promise, something that the Holy Spirit does to assure us and confirm us of our standing in Him, but they are not what creates that righteous status. It's something that we have by what Jesus did Received through through faith. Uh, the reason why things like marriage, you know, marriage is a glorious reality that illustrates the gospel, right? Ephesians chapter five. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Which Paul's saying that uh, God didn't look for a nice illustration and say, "Hey, this marriage thing will work." He's saying God designed marriage because He always wanted to show what the gospel was about, and so uh, marriage displays gospel realities. But it's not a sacrament because not everybody in the church is married. It, it's not something that we practice, uh, you know, for our gatherings to, to serve as signs and seals of our standing in Jesus in the way that baptism and the Lord's Supper should be for the corporate gathering and that Jesus ordained these practices, right? In Matthew 28, he he commands us to baptize disciples. And then at the Last Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, You don't see anywhere else Jesus issuing sacraments of holy orders and and of penance and of marriage. And and so that's why Lady Jane Grey is asking, where's the Bible verse that that teaches that? Did that clarify your question, Lester, or were you asking something else? Yes. Okay, so the reformers did two things. Yes. They trimmed it down and they, and they put them in a different box. So they did both those yes. Right. Yes. Now, um, Martin Luther, his view 
of the sacraments is a little different than John Calvin and some of the other guys. Um, so Luther still held to baptismal regeneration. Uh, so, so Luther did not see baptism as uh, something that God uses to justify us, right? Which is, that's the Roman Catholic view, that in baptism, uh, God removes the stain of original sin and justifies the infant, and the infant has that justified state up until the point of committing mortal sin, and that justification has to get maintained through the system. So Luther totally abandoned that, but he still saw baptism as something that God uses in some way to awaken spiritual life, not as a reason to accept the the child. Um, Guys like John Calvin, they continued to practice infant baptism, which we don't practice here, um, because they saw baptism, not as doing that, not as in any way changing something inside of the child, but it's serving as a sign of a justification that in hope, the parent is saying, one day you're going to receive this. You're part of our covenant community here in the way that infants were circumcised in the Old Testament. They, they see uh, children, infants, as being baptized in, in the New Testament. The reason why we don't practice that uh, is because... One, sola scriptura, we don't see any example of infants being baptized in scripture. Every, every time you see a case of baptism, it's always somebody who's come to faith in, in Christ. And one of the things that the New Testament says is so distinct and special about the new covenant is that to be a member of the new covenant means you're a believer. Uh, this is the promise that, that um, God makes in Jeremiah 31. They shall all know me from the, from the first to the last, the youngest to the oldest. You won't need anybody to teach you to say, know the Lord. I will remember their sins no more. So to so to be in the Old Covenant, you could have been King Ahab and been in the Old Covenant, right? It's this outward ethnic uh, community, but what's unique about being a member of the New Covenant and therefore receiving the covenant signs of baptism in the Lord's Supper is you are a believer. You have your sins forgiven. You, don't, you know the Lord. And so that's why we give the covenant signs um, to those who have that union with, with Christ expressed through through faith. We'll pick up a couple more before we close. Birds. Instrumental. The means. The conduit that God uses is faith. So faith connects us to those other things. And faith is something that we do. God doesn't believe on our behalf. We believe, but God produces that in us in the way that you take a dead corpse, and we're going to look at this this morning in Ephesians 2, and raise it to life, now it sees. So God doesn't see for you, but he gives you eyes that can see. And then when you see Jesus, you say, I want him. I trust in him. And that's what, that's what the instrumental causes. Steve? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe him as being sarcastic, although there there is a measure of 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 what he's saying being veiled, and I think awakening there grumbling and frustrating. He's revealing with his words their spiritual condition. Um, But John chapter 6, you know, if Jesus is talking about communion or the Lord's Supper, how would the people in front of him understand at all what he's talking about, let alone his disciples? Because this is before he's instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. And so it doesn't seem like that is the immediate reference that he has in mind. Although I actually would say that John chapter 6 applies eventually to the Lord's Supper in the way that it it talks about what it means to have a saving relationship with Jesus. And through that, that's what the Lord's Supper is is all about. Um, John chapter 6 is us being saved and sustained through what Christ has done. And when we practice the Lord's Supper, we're, we're reminded and we experience in our hearts a strengthening of faith and the fact that we are both saved and sustained by what Jesus has, has done. But Jesus has already defined his words. You know, he he's, describes himself as the bread of life in John 6.35. And you guys know from the Gospel of John, he's also a door and he is a vine and he is a gate. He's a lot of these things that we don't think that he transubstantiates into. Um, but he, he's using this, this metaphor of, of coming to the bread and eating of it for faith. Look at verse 35. Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. What do you do with this bread? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so eating and drinking, these are expressions that he's using for coming and believing. Um, and so he's already kind of defined his, his words there. And so that later on when he says, you got to eat of me, you got to drink of me, uh, the context tells you he means you, you need a saving relationship with me. You need me in my humanity and what I've come down to do, right? God's bread is a person. The, the bread of God is he who has come down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And so we need Jesus. And, and as we ha- hold bread and wine in our hands in the Lord's Supper, there ought to be fellowship and communion with Jesus in his person and work. And, and here's where, you know, he talked about this last week when he discussed Ehrlich Zwingli in the dispute that Luther and Zwingli had about the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you followed some of that. Um, but it, it, similar with baptism, Luther, uh, Luther departed from seeing uh, the Eucharist as a sacrifice of the Mass, as a presentation again of the work of Christ in order to make God satisfied with us. Um, he rejected that. It's not something that justifies us. Um, and he also rejected transubstantiation, that um, at the words of consecration, the, the substance of the bread and the wine become the substance of the, the, the body and soul and divinity of Jesus, which is what that means. Um, but he did see Jesus in his divine and human nature as coming to be received in some way with the bread and and the wine. Um, and so it, he appealed to this thought that Jesus' human nature, it's, it's like it's available to us everywhere, um, and we come and we partake of that um, in the bread and the wine. Zwingli said, 
No, what's happening in communion is you're remembering what Jesus has, has done and you're being grateful to God. What Calvin said is kind of in between those two and it's, it's that it's not empty. It's not like just eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or brushing your teeth and thinking about Jesus. There is something special that's happening. And this is, this is an amazing way to think about when we gather together. You know, when Jesus says, I'm going to be with you when you gather together... He means something more than just his omnipresence. He means something more than just, hey, I'm with you when you're going out for a jog in your neighborhood. Jesus is with us in a special way when we gather in his name as his people. And he's with us by the Holy Spirit. And he's with us when we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, we might not believe in the real presence of Jesus in the, in the way that transubstantiation describes that. We don't believe in the real absence of Jesus. And so what Calvin said is the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, Jesus comes to us. The Holy Spirit connects us to him uh, in all of his saving benefits and sanctifying benefits. And so it's not that nothing's happening in me. I'm getting sealed. I'm, I'm, I'm getting assured. I'm getting strengthened. I'm getting fed and nourished. And that's the language of John 6, uh, when I receive communion, which we're going to do today. I hope you see it in this, in this way. This is how Paul puts it in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the bread that we bless and the cup that we drink, is it not a participation? And that word he uses there is koinonia, a fellowship in the body and the blood of Jesus. And so what he's saying is there, when you take the bread and you drink of the cup and we're gathered together as God's people, there is, there ought to be, by faith and by the Spirit, a fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his personhood, in his divinity and in his humanity. In other words, with everything that he has accomplished and everything that he is doing to bring us all the way home. And that should awaken confidence to continue. And so I hope you come away as we celebrate communion not thinking, hey, that was a nice thing to do. I'm glad to remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. But right now, thank you God for helping me be more faithful to you and assuring me of your promises and bringing your love to me by the Spirit. All right, we're going to have to stop there and we'll pick up again next week. God, thank you for truth that is life, truth that sets us free. Would we walk in freedom and joy, Lord, freedom from laboring under performance, freedom from the power of sin, freedom to live in love for you and love for others because of the faith that you have awakened in us. In Jesus' name, amen.